0: It's all connected. This is the russjohnson.com podcast. Hey, 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 baby. I am Russ Johnson and it's all connected. Man, the more that I have interviews on this show, the more I am convinced that everything truly is connected at every level. And man, my next guest did not disappoint that at all. His name is Matthew Brownstein. And his exploration of spirituality, health, and healing began with a profound awakening in 1992, which led him to seek the truths within the world's wisdom traditions. Seemingly all of them. He's an amazing mind with amazing experience that will blow your mind i really enjoyed this conversation so much and for the record i think i called him michael once in the interview but let's make it clear his name is matthew brownstein and he deserves proper credit join me now on the it's all connected podcast as we explore the depths of spirituality health and healing with the insightful matthew brownstein when i asked him about his spiritual awakening and how it began
1: Sure. I would started on January thirteenth, nineteen ninety-two. I know because it was so profound. So I was nineteen years old. Now um, yeah, I was lying in bed for no reason. I understood nineteen. The entire, yeah, the entire room just went light in love, and my life was changed ever since. What does that mean to be light in love? Sure. Um, I don't know what it means. It's just a state of being. It just is. Um, So anytime we felt love, like we all know what that feels like, like you love your children. But what I felt at that moment was love was the energy that permeated the whole universe. It was just what made everything. Everything was made of the same light, the same love. It was peace. Not was, it's present tense. Um, It is peace. It's joy. It's bliss. It's a state of oneness and wholeness and completeness. And I had never heard of that or experienced that before. And it only lasted that night. So when I woke up the next morning, it was gone. And I kind of went out of my mind, (laughs) like literally crazy, but like, what happened to me? And how do I tap back into that again? Um, So yeah, it was such a profound experience, different than anything else I had known before. Yeah, I dedicated my whole life to finding out how to tap into it again and how to help others to do so as well. Okay, so let's step back
0: even a little bit further than your spiritual awakening moment and to your childhood. What was it like um, when you were a child? Were you brought up in any particular religion or belief system?
1: I wasn't. My parents, essentially, I don't know how they label themselves, but I would say they're more agnostic. Maybe not atheistic, but even though our family was Jewish by birth, we weren't practicing, we weren't religious. um, I think what my parents gave me was the freedom to find my own way, to be myself. And yeah, I don't attribute anything that happened to me or how my life unfolded uh, to any religious or spiritual component to my parents, except that they're good people and allowed me to be myself.
0: And you ended up at some point, you you gained the mindset, what you described as the monk at heart. But let me let me just run through a few things that you that you've done. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You should be a hundred years old to have gone through all this. You've done you do Chinese medicine, acupuncture, massage, nutrition, shiatsu, reiki levels one and two, herbology, homeopathy, hypnotherapy. Breath work, NLP, yoga, Tai Chi. Good Lord, I could keep going on. You even talk about past life regressions and life in between life regressions, regressions, which is what I do want to discuss with you a little bit later on. But what do you think it was that drove you so strongly to all of these modalities?
1: Honestly, it was that one first experience. It was so, it was like imagine mm-hmm. being in a dark room, and that's just what everybody knows. That's what everybody talks about. And the dark room is scary, and it feels like you're a separate individual, and you never know what monsters are going to get you. You get know, all the fears that people live mm-hmm. with. Yet when I woke up spiritually, it was the exact opposite of that. And it was so good. It was really, and again, it's not like a one-time experience. I learned how to duplicate that and essentially live that way most of the time. Um, So it was the desire to get back to that personally. Yet what I've learned about over the years in spiritual growth is when we reach a certain stage, we're not really concerned about our own individual enlightenment anymore. We're really concerned with others. So in Buddhism, or a monk at heart, there's what's called the Bodhisattva vow. And it's saying like, okay, you know, I'm good. Now, how do I help? Others, so studying all those modalities had very little to do with me. It was just saying, like this is in Zen. They call in Zen archery, we call it one arrow, one life. Like when you go to loose that arrow, that's the one shot. It's the one shot that matters, and you know that's a metaphor for life, right? This life is precious, and I just want to, you know, still to this day, but definitely in the past, wanted for my life to be really meaningful. And to me, that means helping people in a way that truly relieves suffering. And I just kept asking that question. What is the ultimate way to relieve human suffering? Like, what else am I going to do with my time on the planet?
0: Yeah. In your exploration of all of these modalities, did you find a common thread, the similarities among all of them, how it ties back? I would assume that you t- you somehow tied this back to spiritual understanding, right?
1: Yes, there is one common denominator. When I go into that, I remember in college, I took a class called Social Problems. And the teacher, every time we came in, would tell us what's wrong in the world. And the way my mind works, I kept saying, what is the one common denominator here? Why is there so much suffering? Like, you know, when you're young, you don't quite realize how (laughs) bad the world is until, you know, it's pointed out to you if, you know, if you don't watch the news. So in that class, it was like, wow, there's an enormous amount of suffering. What is the one common denominator? People. (laughs) It's human beings. And uh, then you say, well, is it the human body? Well, bodies don't act on their own. Bodies don't murder other bodies, right? It takes the inner being, the mind, to motivate that. I learned about blockages to the awareness of love's presence, that every person, we can go into this if you want, but simply without defining it, we have blocks to who we truly are. I thought those blocks were energetic. So I learned acupuncture, Chinese medicine, Reiki, massage, shiatsu, herbology, but that really couldn't get rid of the mental blocks because they're mental. So the simple answer to the question is the one common denominator to... I'm going to say pretty much, I don't want to say all and overgeneralize, but most human suffering is suffering that comes about because of our mind. That's the one common denominator, the human mind. That's what motivates behavior. It's what generates negative emotions. It's what causes all psychosomatic illness. By definition, Right, the mind causes the illness. Uh, and then, because a lot of people now believe mind is an attractive force, like we attract things to us that are like vibration, if you want to, you know, speak in that way. So really, like I if totally you say, the, yeah, if you say the outside world is a reflection of the inside, well, the inside isn't referring to your intestines and your veins, right? It's referring to your mind, and all the negative emotions we yeah. carry come about because of our thoughts. That's for me the one common denominator.
0: I think you nailed it. It it is our thoughts are what's controlling this thing. It's what's creating the experience. What do you? How do you define what this block is? When like some people describe like the chakras, you know, you get a chakra blocked.
1: Yeah, I acknowledge the chakra system. I think it's a very valid model. However, we have to say why? Do the, why do the chakras get blocked? <laughs> right. Um, right. So that's what I'm asking. The- Yeah, when you study the energy body, and you say in acupuncture, we talk about blocks in the flow of the chi, in the life force. If you study the history of hypnotism with Franz Anton Mesmer, when it was called mesmerism, Mesmer concluded that he could use magnets, or eventually he concluded it's his own animal magnetism, his own energy, that could clear the blocks in others. So this is a big topic. uh, But simply, if we acknowledge that these are energy blocks, but then we say, well, what's blocked actually what is it it's actually our emotions like your your heart chakra it's really just your emotional heart Mm -hmm. so why would that get blocked well it's because we close it down right we suppress our emotions so when you don't want to feel a feeling and you suppress it you're essentially blocking that flow right so anger is meant to move through you and be released but when we harbor it That's essentially a blockage oh my goodness yeah we're not it's not that we're just victims to that it's that you know you're a human being you experience hurt you experience fear you experience anger but when nobody teaches you what to do with those feelings you tend to just push them down deny them and bury them that's what closes chakras that's what blocks energy meridians but when we realize those emotions have at their core belief systems So let's say I feel angry because I feel powerless, right? My emotions don't arise by themselves. My emotions come about because of certain thoughts that I hold, right? If I feel powerless, trapped, helpless, victimized, I'm going to have an emotional response. But if I don't know what to do with that, I tend to bury it inside and... uh, you can't really get rid of that with massage or an acupuncture needle and sometimes talk therapy. You know, it can't really release that traditional yeah. medicine, um, you know, taking prescription meds. Nothing actually really clears those blocks unless you're working directly on the mental level.
0: I love the way you've described that. I can wrap my head around that so much easier than trying to think about certain sections of the body with the chakras, even though I understand it. It's it's really that helps direct the mind so that it can get clear. Is that what it is? You put a meaning to these levels in your body and by focusing on that area because you have put a definition on that area, it can
1: help clear the mind. Yeah, exactly. So let's say that somebody has irritable bowel syndrome, right? So IBS, and you say to them, well, how does that make you feel to have that? And they go, oh, it's so, it makes me so angry. I get so irritated. I actually like to say it's not your symptoms that cause your emotions, it's your emotions that cause your symptoms. Like does your ulcer make you angry or does your anger cause your ulcer? Once you buy into the model that the mind is causal, the mind is what's the emotions or the mind and then the emotions are causing those symptoms. Yeah, if we only treat the symptoms, we might help to relieve some some pain or suffering. And if we only treat the emotions or the chakras or the energy body, we're still dealing actually with symptoms. And it took me a long time in Chinese medicine to realize that. It's like, wait, I'm, I think I'm being holistic. I think I'm treating the root cause by treating the energy body and acupuncture. But and I was just, I have an acupuncturist. And I, I, love the, I love it. But it wasn't my life's work. Because when I was just talking to my acupuncturist, I said, you know, you know, at some point you catch on. That this is all mental, and he's like, I totally agree. (laughs) Then why are you not working on that level? Um, I just couldn't get it in my life.
0: You are most certainly talking my language. Yep, yeah I believe it's all about the thought, man. Okay, every thought is carrying weight, has an energy behind it, and you are clearly into energy. You understand that this whole system is really energy, right? I mean, when you talk about reiki. And even stuff like uh, maybe you can even explain what this is to people. I've only mentioned it once on one of my other podcasts, but how something like Opo'ono'pono works can you can you describe that? Where it originated from and how it works? Sure,
1: um, to the best of my ability, because you know we're talking you're talking one of the most profound mysteries of the universe of how could ho'oponopono. Yeah, meaning just a simple, uh, there's origins, I could tell the story, but I think for the sake of time, it's really just a simple prayer that says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. Why is that so incredibly healing beyond just time and space, right? Those stories about how Ho'oponopono originated when they really realized, whoa, this works. It was just one physician, Dr. Hugh Len, sitting in an office, looking at patient file folders, not... Even talking to the patients and just looking at the patient file folder and saying, I take total responsibility that you're in my life. I somehow have created you and you're sick. I'm sorry for doing that. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. Why does that work? I'm a Course in Miracles student and teacher, and the course teaches that minds are joined. The idea that we're separate individuals is part of that. Dark room illusion I was talking about. But when we wake up in a deeper spiritual way, we start to realize we are all one. We're all interconnected. And quantum physics acknowledges this with the entanglement theory that one atom or one subatomic particle, one side of the universe, when it changes, it can change a subatomic particle on the other side of the universe. I don't know how they figured that out, but that is like hardcore science that quantum particles are entangled. Your mind is part of that field. There's no way you could not be part of the quantum field. So when we change our thoughts, there's a ripple effect that I sincerely believe happens beyond time and space. And like in quantum physics, the double slit experiment, right? The experiment is influenced by the experimenter, right? To think that we, like the old Cartesian philosophy of Rene Descartes and Newton was the idea of, it's a mechanical universe and yet there's a ghost in the machine what is this ghost we don't know you know but it's just all a big machine the ghost is you the spirit the soul the mind with the emotions and the energy body and i think most of us really forget how powerful we really are right so once if we realize how powerful we really are we totally understand how upon upon if my thoughts create my reality then learning forgiveness is perhaps the most important thing any of us could ever do.
0: You, you, you really put that all in a nutshell very nicely. And I would just say that I practiced opal onopono. I learned from um, Joe Vitale. Are you familiar with this guy? Mm-hmm. And there, listen, I mean, who knows how this stuff works, really? I don't know. But there's something to it. It's pretty magical. Do you think it's something that's necessary that you you have to keep repeating it? And it's something you want to do again the next day and that type of stuff? Or is one time enough?
1: No, I definitely think, uh, in A Course in Miracles, it says miracles are meant to be habits, and if they're not occurring naturally, something has gone wrong. Mm. So, we are so ingrained in our habits, our neural pathways are so well carved. So, if you've been holding negative thoughts for 30, 40, 50 years, you know, we're talking decades before a lot of people hear about Ho'oponopono, most people don't know what we're talking about, they don't know how to spell it, right? So, think about, by the time they hear this teaching, how deep are their neural pathways about hatred and vengeance and anger and greed and guilt and shame. And, you know, like we are so ingrained in those pathways that, yes, miracles are instant shifts. They're available to us at any moment. Uh, However, we have to get into the habit of that. And therefore, repetition, like in the field of hypnotherapy, we say repetition is proven to influence your subconscious mind. It's important to acknowledge the subconscious here because the conscious mind, the one who's saying whatever order we do it in, right? Thank you, please forgive me, I love you. If you say that in your conscious mind, but you're not deeply feeling that in your heart, your subconscious mind, it really doesn't have a very powerful effect. The subconscious is 90% of your being. It's the mass of the iceberg, and it does take repetition to change that programming. There's other ways to do it too, but repetition is very powerful.
0: And I think what you've said is very, very important to understand, is this emotion. If you can create the emotion of anything that's what you're that's what creates the attraction that is the energy going out to it and coming back and creates that opportunity it lands in our lap because of the way we think the emotions
1: behind what we think you agree Yeah. so when we do hypnosis and i teach I'm a hypnotherapy school owner you know teacher so i teach my students that you when you use words you words are twice removed from reality they're symbols of symbols so i could offer you a word like let's say prosperity. But what does that mean? It's nothing. It's just a few syllables, right? Prosperity. It doesn't really mean anything. But if it paints a picture in your mind, that's once removed from reality. And then there's the actual thing, like having money or whatever, you know, however we define prosperity. Um, So if I say like the word pen, that's just a word. But then I can get an idea in your mind that's closer to the reality. But then the actual pen is the actual thing. So when we're Working with words like thank you, please forgive me. It's important to realize they're just words. So, what we do is we work to have the words paint pictures and develop and elicit emotion. So, if I say, imagine your dream home, like we talk about prosperity, but I say, imagine your home and your family and the new cars and all your bills are paid and your life is wonderful. Now, I'm painting pictures and I'm eliciting emotion. And that's what gets the subconscious moving. So, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. Uh, Those three major representational systems are really important. if not, we think words are powerful, but if they don't move the emotional being, then they really don't do much of anything. Lovely.
0: Let's switch over to something else here. Traditional Chinese medicine. I know nothing about this. What do I need to know?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. If you have an issue, it's definitely worth trying. Um, So a big part of what Chinese medicine does is it is a very unique diagnostic system. Um, So a Chinese medical practitioner will read your pulses and they will look at your tongue and other signs and symptoms. Um, But quite often in that model, you can detect things before they actually manifest. Like if you go to your doctor, they'll say, well, I don't know, I don't find anything wrong with you. But in Chinese medicine, we really can find things wrong with you, right? We can say, you know, you have liver qi deficiency, you have liver qi stagnation, you have yang deficiency. These are terms that are not used in Western medicine, and it gives people a whole nother avenue to work to find balance in their body. Um, what I learned in Chinese medicine, which So was, what are
0: you doing to, to determine that?
1: Yeah, so to determine what the imbalances are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's definitely pulse reading. So, um, actually, feeling the pulses on both wrists can tell you an enormous amount of information, not just about one's physiology, but even about their mental emotional state. Uh, when you get really good at pulse reading, you could actually tell, like, oh, you're menstruating now, or oh, you're really angry today, wow. or wow, okay. you're really like, closed down a lot up here.
0: <laughs> Listen, let's uh-huh. let's take that menstruating as an example. So, reading someone's pulse. How are you able to determine that's what the issue is? Is it the the beat? Is it the number of beats or what?
1: Mm-hmm. It's a complex topic. Yet if you were to take your, and we're not doing video right now, but if you took three fingers and put it on your radial pulse, the side of your thumb, uh-huh. uh, so your index finger, middle, and ring finger, um, you're feeling all three of those positions, not just the pulse itself. On the left side, in the middle, is the pulse position that is able to assess the, emotion, the energetic quality of the liver-gallbladder system. And quite often, when a woman is menstruating and you're feeling what's happening on the side that represents blood and the liver, because uh, that's what that pulse position is, you can feel when it's deficient or you could feel when it's what's called wiry, when it's tight. And So if a woman's having menstrual cramps, you could actually quite often feel in the pulse that the liver chi is stagnant and that's what's causing that pain. Um, So what I learned though is the emotions affect all of these organ systems. Anger affects the liver. So like we were talking about before, uh, is it Just a blockage. Do you just have a blockage? It's not like a physical blockage. When we talk about the liver, we're not talking about the physical liver. We do talk more about the energetic liver in Chinese medicine. And when we say there's a blockage there, again, it's not necessarily physical. So what is that blockage? Anger in Chinese medicine affects the liver, fear affects the kidneys, anxiety affects the heart, rumination and worry affects the spleen, stomach system, grief and loss affects the lungs. So you can feel that in the pulses and you can be like, "Eh, in the lung position, you can feel that and feel, hmm, there's something off about the lungs. However, once you realize there's a very good chance that's an emotional issue, you actually can't resolve that well in Chinese medicine in my humble opinion. That's why I got into the field of hypnotherapy. I don't practice acupuncture. Um, I really I, I learned in Chinese medicine there's the Yellow emperor's classic of Chinese medical theory, and it says the lesser level physician heals on the bodily level. The mid-level physician heals on the energetic level. The highest-level physician heals on the spiritual-mental level. Well, you know, I'm in my early 20s in acupuncture college. I'm like, well, I want to be the highest-level physician. (laughs) And there was a book in Chinese medicine called Rooted in Spirit. And it said, all healing must be rooted in spirit. And I was like, how is... You know, how is basic Chinese medicine actually getting to that deeper level? And while some very advanced practitioners can go there, I just found hypnotherapy was a way to go there directly. Because if you're having menstrual cramps because you have stagnant liver qi, as we might say in Chinese medicine, but from a hypnotherapy perspective, I can say, oh, you're just suppressing your anger. Right? You, like Let's say the woman who has severe menstrual cramps may have been sexually, maybe, not necessarily always, but maybe, had been sexually abused as a child. You really can't address that with acupuncture needles or herbs or massage or Reiki. But with hypnosis, we can actually go into the subconscious and bring those memories to consciousness. We can release those emotions and then the stagnant liver tree starts moving. The blood flow of the liver starts moving and menstrual cramps just drop away. That's where real miracle occur, because mental shifts can happen like that, like in the snap of a finger. So you can change your mind instantly, but you can't change your physiology instantly because your physiology is reacting to your mind. But once the mental shift occurs, the emotions follow, the energy body follows, and the body follows. And the beautiful thing about that level of healing is the symptoms would never come back. Because right, wow. once, once true healing has occurred, it doesn't have to be repeated. right? Once you change your mind, like, let's say you decided, I'm going to hold on to this anger because I hate that person. Once you truly forgive and let that go, you would never be silly enough to go back and harbor that anger again. So right. once true healing has occurred, it doesn't have to be repeated. And that's why I had to dedicate my life to working in the mental level.
0: That's why you got into hypnotherapy. Why? What um, type of hypnotherapy do you deal with? Like I learned how to do Q- um, well, well. I'm still learning QHHT uh, went uh, from Dolores Cannon, the past life regression stuff. And uh-huh. I see that you do past life regressions. Yeah. Um, yeah. What all do you do?
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, our brand is called interpersonal hypnotherapy, and I'm very aware of QHHT and Dolores Cannon. It's wonderful work, um, deeply spiritual. I have a lot of students, you know, have studied that. But a lot of students who've gone through that come into our school because they realize just how much they're missing. And like, hypnotherapy is a very vast profession with hundreds and hundreds of hours of training available, and QHHT just it's kind of honestly, I mean, it goes deep in the spiritual side, but doesn't necessarily go into the comprehensive fundamentals. So what I teach are definitely the fundamentals of really solid classical hypnosis. Uh, And then we go into much deeper principles, but the essence of it is interpersonal. So I was in meditation one night speaking to my higher inner wisdom, and I was just pondering the question, what is true hypnotherapy? And I asked, is it transpersonal, which is very much what Dolores Cannon is all about. Um, Is it about the spiritual? Is that like the essence of it? And my inner guidance voice said, yes, and it is interpersonal, which was a step beyond even transpersonal. They started honoring, so one of my books called Interpersonal Hypnotherapy is subtitled Honoring the Sacred and Transformational Relationships. And it's not just the relationship I might have, you know, the practitioner has with his or her client, it's the relationships we have within our subconscious mind. So let's say you do a past life regression. You're not necessarily look or childhood regression. You're not necessarily looking for one specific memory. Like some people like to think, let's go back to like the liver and menstrual cramps. You like to think there's just one event that caused that. And once you find the one event, it would be over. But the truth is you had parents every single well, you know, most people had parents every single day of their life. It wasn't that dad just did one thing to you once. That was doing that kind of stuff every day. You know, he was the same guy every day, and he lives in your subconscious mind. He's a part of it, we call it the inner parent ego state. Just like you have an inner child, you have an inner parent. And at the root of every problem that I've seen, or Again, I don't want to overgeneralize, uh, but let's say the root of most problems is what we call a parent-child conflict, living in the subconscious mind. The child feels emotions, and the parent tends to squelch those emotions. And when it's the parent who's hurting us, what do we do with the emotion, right? We get angry when someone hurts us, but you can't attack your parents, nor can you run away. So you end up bottling it up inside. So interpersonal hypnotherapy is all about focusing on the relationships and the importance of forgiveness. So whether it's a past life or a childhood regression or somewhere in the intralife, life between lives, we're still always going to look at an interpersonal hypnotherapy. Where is the unforgiveness? And if you acknowledge forgiveness is the essence of any true miracle, then you're so incredibly empowered to heal the mind, to heal the body, to heal our lives, and essentially to heal most human problems, right? I sincerely believe forgiveness is the answer, Uh, but I don't think we hear about it enough. Like, um, I have a conference coming up, and we're talking about embracing a path of healing and enlightenment, and it's called redefining facilitation. I say, when you go to your doctor, they don't necessarily say to you, how's your enlightenment going? (laughs) <laughs> How's your mm. inner peace going? Uh, they was like, you know, are you stressed? Yeah. But um, that would be nice, right? Yeah, it would. It would be nice. And you know, we give our clients two hours, where you might see a physician for seven to ten minutes. But a person is a very complex yeah. thing, not just physiologically, but our emotions yeah. and our memories, and that requires time. So yeah, an interpersonal hypnotherapy session is two hours long. It almost always focuses not just on your symptoms, but on your emotions your belief systems, and the memories that cause all that. But within the memories, we're looking for the relationships. Once that's forgiven, the whole card house falls. So I teach that we collapse problems from the bottom up. If you pull the bottom card out, the whole card house falls. But if you're only treating symptoms, which includes the energy body, the emotional body, um, even memories, right? But once you get down to the core relationships in the subconscious mind, that's where forgiveness can be applied. And again, that's where miracles really can occur.
0: You said this is good for most human problems. What Are there certain issues that it's not good for?
1: I sincerely believe, and this is my personal belief, that yes, mind is causing all of our problems. However, we can acknowledge now there are environmental toxins, right? If you know, if you inhale fentanyl you know we're going to acknowledge okay this is a real toxic substance you don't need that in your body but like let's say cigarettes for instance you know if you keep smoking you know anybody smoking a lot there's a good chance you're going to end up getting cancer but is that psychosomatic did the mind cause that well the cigarette didn't jump in your mouth itself, right? Like, we're not victims. Like, you picked up that cigarette, and your mind knows on some level this is going to lead to problems later on. So most negative behaviors that we engage in create problems, but, you know, there's a lot of environmental toxin now we've done a wonder on our planet as far as global warming and, you know, climate change. I acknowledge those are major causes of suffering. You know, we have this huge... um, Shooting epidemic that's happening, but it, it is the people who are doing that, right? It's, I'm not saying I have the answer for gun violence, but yeah. it is the mind of somebody who's very disturbed who yeah. goes and does that. If those people's minds were healed, there'd be no more shootings. If everybody became environmentally conscious and made proper choices, we would be improving our planet. That really is all the mind. If we realized, Fentanyl doesn't get us anything, we would stop doing it. So, yeah, most problems you could list come back to mind. But I'm willing to say virtually all problems just because, you know, I never know exactly my audience I'm speaking to, and it tends to get less pushback to say most problems. But in my heart of hearts, I would actually say all human suffering is the result of mind. But I know not everybody believes that, and I respect that.
0: In a spiritual sense, do you believe that we're as a species going to ever come to these conclusions of like, you know, we are connected and it's all about love and we'll get past all of this gun violence and all that stuff. Do you think we're heading in that type of direction on a spiritual level? Um, Or do you think that's an impossibility? We may never get there.
1: Well, in my lifetime, I don't know that we're going to get there. Um, You know, and I'm laughing a little bit, but it's it's really tragic. Um, You know, I honestly don't know. I mean, again, I'm a Course in Miracles teacher, and there is an inevitability of the atonement. Eventually, we're all going to come back to oneness. But a Course in Miracles teaches, it took millions and millions of years to get to this point, and it can take millions and millions more before we stop doing all this insane thinking. (laughs) So I don't think it's—while there is a solution to this— How many people are going to apply that solution? I sincerely thought, and I was just part of a group recently of uh, older men who were talking about what our lives were like. And it was like, you know, we dedicate our lives to helping humanity. But, you know, it seems worse than ever. And therefore, when you just look at the evidence out there, it doesn't appear like we're approving. Like we're not that far from nuclear war. We're dangerously close to the tipping point of climate change, right? Gun violence is worse than ever. Then politics, you know, it's insane. AI's so again, when
0: I took us. that social problem, what's that? <laughs> AI, AI is yes, AI, AI, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hey, but look, you know what I think, Michael, all this stuff, you know, it sounds chaotic and all that stuff. And it is chaotic. You know, at the same time, it's one of the most wonderful times to be alive. I just believe, you know, that ultimately we have to go through this craziness in order to get to the other side. At least I'm hopeful that's what's happening here. I believe everything happens for a reason. And that this chaos that we're experiencing right now is necessary to get us to wherever it is that we're going. I believe that we will probably exhaust this hatred at some point that will be probably going to take something very dramatic as well. But we'll wake up and go, look, what we're doing to ourselves. And, yeah, I do agree with you that it's probably not going to be in our lifetimes. At least I hope not. If it does, we've done something terribly wrong. And maybe AI is going to (laughs) – maybe it has been unleashed to make stuff like that happen. But ultimately, I do. I have hope that we are. I think we're evolving. At least we're supposed to be. If we don't kill ourselves before we get there, Um, we'll evolve to the point where – Yeah, we do understand that it is about love. It's about understanding that everything is connected. That's why I called this podcast, It's All Connected. I believe it in my heart of hearts. I get the sense
1: that you do, too. Am I right? I absolutely believe we're all connected. I also, like you, believe that we're spiritual beings. So when we say, are we going to get over this? If we identify ourselves as bodies... Well, if you're having a human experience, you're going to have ego, and you're going to have hurt, and fear, and sadness, and anger. Like this is part of what it means to have this body, to have a human experience. But as spiritual beings, will we eventually stop the insanity? Yes. Um, But you know, think about because you talk about life between lives and all that. See it as the soul's journey. Will the soul eventually get it? Yes. But will we see the collective of humanity get it? You know, again, it's I'm not as optimistic about that honestly although i do agree with you you and all things work for good um but this if you see earth as like a school or a training ground you know i I had a teacher he once said in case you haven't noticed you're not in the heavenly realms you know so buddha 2500 years ago figured out the root cause of suffering but 2500 years later we're still doing it christ came down great teachings you know amazing you know jesus you know he did good um 2,000 years later, but we're still doing it. So in many ways,
0: I just well, let me give we- you, let me give you something to chew <laughs> on here and tell me your thoughts about it. So I believe, like even with religions, right, the numbers of people that believe a certain way have influence on the collective. So if we can get to the point where we can get the majority of people understanding it's beyond religion, this is about an energy and that we're all connected, if we can get to that threshold, whatever that number is... Then in mass, we're just, it's gonna, it's gonna spread like wildfire and more of us will just, and then all of a sudden we've made that shift that helps us see the path that we're on right now makes zero sense. And so we, because we see it, something like again, maybe a terrible disaster, like a nuclear bomb or something crazy like that has to happen where there's so much destruction that it makes us go, what are we doing? You know, maybe only three people survive. Maybe that's what makes it come alive. Mm-hmm. But that, but I believe that we have to get to that point if we want to survive as a species, because we're going to kill each other if we
1: don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that we're, we're on that path. But I do acknowledge what you're saying. There is a critical mass. You know, it's the hundredth monkey phenomena that once enough of us get Correct. it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be all of us get it. Enough of us get it. So I love the Bhagavad Gita teaching of... Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, the teaching is to release attachment to the fruits of your actions. You just act to act. So I am 100% on board. I think you can tell you know, who I am about relieving suffering and bringing us back to a state of oneness and joy and harmony and love. And that's what I'm all about. And I will, I've dedicated my whole life to that. And I'll do that until the day that I leave this body. Um, but I'm not attached to the outcome. So while I'm working towards what you're talking about, you know, I think a lot of us are, um, I'm really not attached to what's going to happen. I just know I've been, I feel like I I have a mission and my mission is absolutely to relieve suffering and I'm going to do my part. But I know when I leave, I'm pretty sure there's still going to be suffering here, but I'll just know I did what I needed to do as part, like in A Course in Miracles, using theistic terms, it says like God's plan for salvation. I acknowledge that. I sincerely, you know, those are just words, um, like God and salvation, but I sincerely believe there is a plan to get us out of suffering. Yet again, in A Course in Miracles, it says, um, like speaking in the Bible, it says, In the beginning, uh, or with Adam and Eve, it talks about, you know, metaphorically, that a sleep fell upon Adam. But it says nowhere in the Bible does it talk about a collective reawakening. Like, no, we haven't woken up yet. We're still largely asleep. And um, I know, yeah, those of us like, you know, you, me, and many, many others, we're working towards awakening humanity to our oneness and that love and that joy. But yeah, releasing attachment to the outcome is all I can do.
0: Well, Matthew, you gave the, the biggest wisdom of the day by saying non-attachment, right? You're not attached to the outcome. And that's something I'm constantly working on with everything that I encounter. So, yeah, I think that's great, great advice, uh, not having an attached outcome, just letting it be what it is. My goodness, you are so smart. You know this stuff. You know it forwards and backwards. It's, you're, you're pretty an impressive, dude. Um, what do you think? The what are the key features of the interactive distance learning systems? I've read that on your website. I'm not even sure what that is. And then it was talking about the Institute of Interpersonal Hypnotherapy, which is what you run. Is that correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I founded the. It was called the Florida Institute of Hypnotherapy, and then eventually I realized more about what we're really about. So it's interpersonal hypnotherapy. So yeah, I founded the Institute of Interpersonal Hypnotherapy in 2007, and at some point we decided we're actually going to start transforming it into a college-slash-university. We're moving in that direction, and I started looking into the best practices in education because we did start, especially with COVID, moving the training more and more online. We got licensed by the Department of Education to offer the training 100% online. And, you know, I was doing the best I could, but then I started consulting with a lot of PhDs and they were saying, well, you know, the the theme these days is best practices and let's... You know, and So I just started working with a lot of really high-level consultants So, what are best practices in education. And IDL, or Interactive Distance Learning, is a way of delivering a curriculum where there's student-to-student interaction and student-to-teacher interaction. Because if you just do like an online correspondence course where all they do is watch videos but never interact with each other and never interact with the teacher, you're missing something. So IDL definitely has the student-to-teacher interaction is a big part of it. Um, so we have about 18 different ways Ways to be delivering the curriculum. So there's videos students watch, yet there's community development groups, discussion forums, breakout groups, student uh, teacher interactions, um, preparing them for practicum hours so they come in and practice on each other, or they can practice most hypnotherapy online, uh, which we've been doing. But interactive really just means exactly that it's interacting with the content and with the instructors and classmates instead of just reading books and watching videos.
0: Man, you guys just, you teach so much too. How, what is your favorite of any, of all of this stuff that you're involved in? What is the, your, where you spend your most time that you enjoy it the most?
1: Um, that's a good question. The two topics that come to mind are eye movement therapy and breath work. So EMT is essentially just hypnosis, because we as hypnotists have been moving a pendulum back and forth between in front of people's eyes, you know, for centuries now. Like, you know, look at my eye or look at the pendulum or look at my pocket watch. There's there's something about having the eyes move back and forth. So we don't teach EMDR. It just sounds like you know, there's similarities, but we we don't do EMDR that's really relegated to the field of psychology. But in hypnosis, we have the eyes move back and forth. What happens during those moments? is we're bypassing the critical part of your conscious mind to gain instant access to your subconscious mind. And so while I'm doing that, just gaining access to the subconscious, however I might do it, uh, then I go into what's called truth talk. And truth talk, essentially, is to look at the errors that the client holds in their mind. And errors are essentially false beliefs. I'm stupid. I'm bad. I'm useless. I'm unlovable. I am dirty. I'm disgusting. I'm powerless. I'm trapped. I'm helpless. All of those beliefs, I believe, are false. And I love to. the thing I love most is to tap into the client's true spiritual beliefs. Like, what do they really believe about who they really are? And, you know, they might not be fully actualized in that, of course, because that's why they're a client. But they anybody who has some spiritual or religious belief, I'm going to use that to unravel their false belief. So, for instance, if they believe in God, I would say, who are you in relationship to God? They would say, well, I'm a child of God. And I would say, created in the image and likeness of God? Yes. Well, you just told me you're powerless. Is God powerless? No. Well, God created you, right? Yes. Did God create you powerless? Huh. (laughs) So, you show them the conflict in their mind. And then you say, all right, and so, if you're using theistic terms, you could say, well, if God says you're powerless, but I'm sorry, if God says you're powerful, and you say you're powerless, one of you is wrong. Who do you think is wrong here? You or God? So yeah, again, it's only if we mm-hmm. can use theistic terms, which I'm not attached to and I don't preach. But you ask me, like, what do I I love truth talk because I love helping people to wake up to who they truly are. And then breath work is the other major modality that we integrate into our hypnotherapy work where you do a certain type of breathing and essentially it forces your emotions up to consciousness. So whatever you've been burying, like that stagnant liver chi we were talking about, where maybe menstrual cramps, for instance, when you're breathing in a certain way, all of a sudden you start feeling the discomfort in your body, and it's safe. It's been proven to be a very safe modality. But after you're breathing a certain way, feeling the physical discomfort, all of a sudden your emotions start coming to consciousness. Once that's strong enough, the memories that cause the emotion tend to come to consciousness. So now the client realizes within 10, 20, 30 minutes, oh my God, all this pain is because of my emotions and these emotions come from these memories. Those are huge aha moments. Once that's brought to consciousness, it's really easy to resolve. I mean, we're talking in a matter of, hours that can be cleared i've seen endometriosis ulcerative colitis crohn's disease arthritis cancer i mean i've seen these things wow. like, um, like healed you know, i can go on and on if you want to about like these miracles wow. i've seen um i had a client this elderly woman in her 70s she had crohn's disease and in 10 hours of total work just five sessions that was completely healed, medically verified, you know, and done under medical supervision, because um, we always work in coordination with the physicians. And, uh, like, you know, we have proven we healed that. In five sessions, uh, that, to me, is the most rewarding part of the work. So I used to give lectures all the time called Healing the Mind, Healing the Body, because you know my background in Chinese medicine, I wanted to know how I can perform miracles. Like, miracles happen, but why? What's the mechanism? And the modalities right. I mentioned help us, they give us tools to be able to perform miracles, essentially.
0: See, that's the questions I always have. I want to know how it works. This breathwork stuff, why does it work? I know. I've, I've done some breath work, and it's absolutely amazing how it can make you feel. It definitely it puts you into a different realm of, I don't know, your emotions different. You feel different. How and why does it work?
1: You know, I don't know that anybody understands physiologically why it works. Like, why would having a lot of oxygen in your blood cause your memories and emotions yeah. to come up? Um, I like to explain it energetically. So if we talk about energy blocks, when there's enough energy coming so I do acknowledge the chakra system. Right? Energy is meant to flow up and down the chakra system. But when we have a block, um, it doesn't flow as smoothly. It's not that chakras get closed. If they closed, you would die. But they get blocked. And when you put enough Shakti or chi or Prana, whatever you call it, enough life force in the system, it tends to force the blockages to consciousness. So I knew all about blockages, you know, or I knew about blockages before Chinese medical college and before uh, hypnotherapy training. So I was just asking... How do I clear these blockages? And that's why I chose acupuncture. But once I realized these are mental and emotional, I had to start looking to the, the mind. But then realizing how intimately connected the breath is to the energy body, to the emotions, to the mind... Once you amplify the breath in a certain way, it forces that to consciousness. I really don't understand why it does it physiologically, but energetically it makes total sense. Put enough life force in someone's system, and you can do it with acupuncture. I've had acupuncture treatments that felt just like breath work because the practitioner is so good. There's so much chi coursing through your body. If something's blocking it, then energy will hit it, and it'll come up to consciousness. But breath work is... Um, it doesn't work every session, you know. It's sometimes hit or miss whether the client's going to have this profound breakthrough we're looking for. And in breath work we teach you can never do it wrong. Whatever happens is what happens. But I'm secretly hoping, you know, when I'm watching my client, that their emotions come up, their memories come up, and then I can jump in and help to resolve that. Um, but if that doesn't happen, it's okay. Whatever happened is with men too. Sometimes just breathing that way is very healing for the physical body. If we even if we don't get to the memories and the emotions, but when those come up. Whatever reason that they do, we're so empowered to heal them at that time.
0: Can we go back just a moment to an earlier part of our conversation? Um, you had mentioned about the chakras, uh, recognizing those, and then we talked about the blockages. So are you saying now that you think that these blockages are actually in these locations, or do you think it's within the mind, or is it both? Is there energy trapped, is what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think it's... And not, I'm not talking about just anywhere, but I'm talking about within that location of the body, like the solar plexus, or is it all in the mind?
1: Well, where is the mind? <laughs> so I think the answer to your question is yeah. question. Yeah, so we use a technique by Dr. Eugene Genlin called focusing, and it really deals with the body felt sense. So when we do our intake, the way I train my students, is you're going to find the client's symptoms, like, what's your issue? And they say, okay, well, you know, I have headaches. And they say, okay. Then we go to the emotions. Well, what are the connected, associated emotions? Let's say that's anger. And then we say, well, what are the belief systems? Well, I feel powerless and trapped and helpless. That's why I get angry. And that causes the headaches. But where is that blockage? It's not actually in the head. So we'll say, drop down below your chin and above your waist. Where do you feel all that anger? And anger tends to go to the solar plexus, to the third chakra. And um, so it's a continuum, like the chakra system is essentially a tube, like, like your digestive system, you got your mouth and your anus, it's a tube. And the chakra system, from the crown to the tailbone, is like a tube. Energy is meant to be going up and down that, but it's a gradient going from consciousness down to mind, down to emotions down to the physical body. And, you know, there's a really complex energetic anatomy that I couldn't actually explain just with audio here. Yet, where are the blockages? I would just say they start in the mind, they manifest into the emotions, they manifest into the energy body, and that manifests into the physical body. And that can, it's not just so, you know, we even know this in just traditional medicine. If you have a blockage in one area, like what was I just, oh, uh, like fatty liver. If you have a fatty liver issue, you could have shoulder pain, right? And they understand, like, you know, why that would be, how it relates to the nerve. The nerve is, you know, getting affected and it's radiating. So pain is not only... The cause of pain isn't necessarily where the pain is, right? We know that physically, and we know that energetically. So exploring where the cause is, is really crucial. But when you're dealing with the mind, you're essentially talking about something that's not in time and space, right? It manifests into time and space, but the mind isn't in time and space. And that's why miracles can happen. Like, how could we instantly heal someone? You can't do it if it's just the body, because the body's in the space of time, but the mind isn't in the space of time. So, if I can, like, so here's an example. If you make a decision, uh, it'll stay in place until you choose again. If you say, I'm never going to love again, you will never love again until you change that decision. So, because it's just a decision, and that one decision is closing your heart, and we know scientifically, like, it's medically proven. That if you close your heart, your heart starts to calcify. You literally end up with calcium deposits on your heart when you close down emotionally. How do we reverse that? It's not just calcium, you know, detoxification medicines. All we have to do is get you to say, you can open your heart to love. It's safe to love. Once they get that, the heart opens, the blood flows, and ideally, you know, calcium deposits, I don't know, but, you know, could technically dissolve Mm -hmm. away. So, um... Yeah, focusing in the mind, realizing you can make instantaneous shifts in the mind, has a cascading effect down into the body.
0: This conversation has been all over the place. I can tell you, man. I know, really, we should have picked just one. You have so many, so much knowledge in so many areas. Like we could have just—I mean, we didn't talk about NLP. We didn't talk about any meditations, or didn't you live in India?
1: I did live in the Himalayas in India. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, we'll have to talk. Maybe I can get you back sometime. Starchild Project, Samadhi, I love talking about that stuff. And The Course in Miracles alone could be three or four shows just all by itself. Maybe more than that. I mean, I would love to have you back sometime. I only have two more questions for you, though. Um, what are your spiritual practices? What do you do every day, or do you do anything every day that uh, maintains your spiritual nature?
1: Sure. So. Yeah, complicated, um, but simply stated, I'm very much a Zen Buddhist practitioner at heart. I practice Zazen and ascribe to a lot of Zen practice, because Zen is um, a very refined form of Buddhism, and Buddhism is a very refined form of Hinduism. So I find in Zen practice, it pretty much includes encapsulates everything in the idea of just sitting. So my primary practice is called Shikin Taza, which in Zen practice, it just means just sitting. And literally, your your body is still and you're 100% present and there's just no one home. You're just sitting there, and you're complete. So I definitely practice Zen. Nice. I definitely practice A Course in Miracles. I love The Course in Miracles lessons. Those thoughts are always better than my thoughts, <laughs> my ego, <laughs> which you know I can still have thoughts that aren't mm. at the highest. But once I go to A Course in Miracles, nice. it realigns my mind back to truth very easily. And then I teach something called the Anahat Meditation System, which... I would to tell people where to find that um, at OnlineMonastery.com. So I've been practicing what's called Anahat Meditation, which has its roots in Zen and yogic practice, but it's real and sacred geometry, but it's very much its own unique system. Um, and I've been practicing that since 1996.
0: Nice. Last question for you. What do you believe happens when we die?
1: Nothing. Because <laughs> I I really, you know, the deepest level, I just don't believe there's death. So the body stops functioning, but it doesn't even die, right? Like your car doesn't die. We just use that word. Your car just stops working and then eventually it's going to return to the elements. So when the body stops working and returns to the elements nothing happens. It's just the same as anything else, right? Waves come up, waves go down. Bodies come up, bodies go down. What happens to the consciousness? Nothing, because the consciousness is eternal and immortal. Where do you go, if that's kind of what you're asking? That has a lot to do with your blockages, with your mind and your emotion. So, If you're very, I acknowledge reincarnation. I think there's tremendous truth. And beyond just reincarnation, the transmigration model says a lot to me. So basically, the idea is the mental patterns that we hold don't die when the body dies. So if you're holding greed, anger, vengeance, rage, jealousy, that's going to influence what you experience after the time of bodily death. You know, if we want to use the word death, I just say bodily death, because you don't die. Um, so those who are focused on love, peace, joy, bliss, oneness, service, uh, sincere like I have had many, we, if you want to get me back, we can talk about out-of-body experiences. I left my body many, many times, and I know wow. I consciously left my body. And because I focus on deep spiritual principles of love and peace and kindness, I've only experienced angelic realms out of the body. I've only experienced beauty and goodness and grace and ascended masters and you know saints and sages because that's what i focus on oh my goodness you will definitely have to come
0: back i've been looking for someone who can uh, have these conversations with me and i've yet to find someone who had a story like you listen (laughs) you're coming back matthew listen tell everybody how they can get in touch with you
1: thanks russ i really i appreciate your enthusiasm i'll be happy to come back um my primary website is instituteofhypnotherapy.com there's an abundance of free resources like 500 plus hours of free conscious community classes with me teaching about these topics um, and then there's a i have my own podcast i don't do it much but i've interviewed so there's a lot of free resources at instituteofhypnotherapy.com and then if people want to go into the deeper meditative teachings that i offer they can go to onlinemonastery.com.
0: Okay, well, I will definitely be checking that out. OnlineMonastery.com. Thank you so much, Matthew Brownstein, for today's podcast. I will definitely be back in touch, and I'm going to have you again sometime. We'll stay a little more focused next time. Thank you again for listening, everybody. It's all connected at RussJohnson.com. What do you believe happens when we die? Tell us about it. Call now at 864-259-2599. That's 864-259-2599 or contact Russ on his website at russjohnson.com.